Well, let's begin with a prayer. In the name of the Father, and the Son, and the Holy Spirit. Loving Father, we thank you for all the ways that you have already loved us through the season of Lent and all past seasons. And we want to respond to your love by prayer, fasting, and almsgiving. Help us to understand the gift that fasting and almsgiving plays in our life to help us to draw closer to you and to each other. And may our lives become more like yours in the way that you love and show mercy. And we make all our prayers through Christ our Lord. Amen. In the name of the Father, and the Son, and the Holy Spirit. Amen. Before we dive into fasting and almsgiving, there was a question last week that I thought would be good to answer about prayer. The question was, just a little bit more? Just a little bit louder, I guess. Just a little bit. The question had to do with, uh, just a little, uh, had to do with distractions. What do I do, what do you do, when there are distractions in prayer? It's a very common experience. And what many of us find is when we get older or when we get busier, which often happens at the same time, we have more trouble with distractions. So here's just a, a basic general some, some tips or guidelines with regard to that problem. First of all, distractions are normal. They're part of human life. They're part of our weakness. We should not be surprised by distractions. When we get distractions in prayer, if they're very insistent, the same distraction, one rule of thumb is maybe the Lord wants me to pray about that distraction so that then I can let it go and give it up. Sometimes the Lord just simply wants me to quietly and peacefully bring my mind back and then let's say two or three minutes later it drifts off again. Then I quietly and peacefully bring my mind back. And if I spend the whole time of prayer doing that, that is a prayer that is pleasing to God. Because God looks at the heart, at the desire. And that which is worth doing, like prayer, is worth doing poorly. I forget who said that. Yes? Whatever is worth doing, it's worth doing poorly because of all the fruits, many of them hidden, that come from that perseverance in prayer in the poverty of desire where the results are not very impressive. A whole hour fighting distractions. But to God, that can be very pleasing. A way to help with distractions, as some of the saints will teach us, like St. Teresa of Avila, she could not pray for like 15-some years without a book. She always had to have a book to focus her mind and her heart and to use the book and the content 
as a springboard into prayer. And then if she was in some quiet, silent prayer with God, and then she would get distracted again, she would return to the book. So the book served as an anchor or a place to focus the monkey brain that's jumping all over the place. So use a book, but use the right book. Don't use a book that's real heady. Spiritual reading is a certain kind of reading. We are not trying to feed the mind so much, but rather to move the heart to acts of love, adoration, and thanksgiving, and what else? And spiritual reading is different than other kinds of reading where you are not concerned whether you even finish the paragraph. You open it up, you ask the Holy Spirit to make use of that, and then you start reading slowly, quietly, and peacefully, reading more with the heart than with the mind until something moves your heart, and then you put the book down, even if you haven't finished the page and I know this would kill some of you because we're, we're about finishing books. Let's get through the chapter. Spiritual reading, you're more detached and unconcerned and you're only using the content to move the heart and lift it toward God. And if you get distracted like St. Teresa of Avila, go back to the book. Okay, just a little tidbit on prayer. Let's talk about fasting and almsgiving. And like last week, we'll probably talk about fasting first. We'll take a five-minute stretch break, and then we'll go to almsgiving. This will be the, the shortest of all the three talks, I think, I hope. Okay. Fasting was very much a part of the life of Israel. And fasting was done for various reasons. There are primarily five reasons for fasting that we see in the Old Testament and in the culture of that time. First of all, fasting was a way to express sadness or mourning for the loss or suffering experienced by someone that is loved, that was close. It was a way to share in their trial and to commiserate with their suffering and their pain. It was a way to share that experience together. Then another reason, like David after his fall with Bathsheba or the people of Nineveh after the preaching of Jonah, fasting was a way to manifest one's desire to repent and turn their life around. Fasting becomes a reparation of love for the sins committed as a way to mend and rebuild the edifice of the love of God that sin weakened or may have destroyed. It was a way of expressing one's desire to place God and his commandments back in the center of one's life. Another reason for fasting, 
as we see in the story of Esther. When she was in that crisis and she needed to hear the word of God and to be open to receive that divine assistance from God that she depended on because she was in a situation where she was totally helpless on what to say to the king and what to do. And so for her, fasting was a way to be better able and disposed to hear the Lord in prayer and to be more receptive of his divine help. When my stomach or my belly is filled with food, it's kind of hard for my spirit to hear what God is saying. I'm hearing more in my stomach than God. All right? Another reason, a fourth reason for fasting, is connected with almsgiving, with charitable deeds of service. Here, fasting serves the purpose of making one less self-focused and more attentive to the needs of others. True fasting was meant to make one more sensitive and attuned to the cry and thirst for love in the needy around us. There's that reading that comes around every year for Ash Wednesday that expresses this very well from Isaiah chapter 58. The people say, Why have we fasted, Lord, and you do not see it? Why have we humbled ourselves and you do not notice? And then God says, Yet on the day of your fasting, you do as you please, and you exploit your workers. Your fasting ends in quarreling and strife, and in striking each other with wicked fists. You cannot fast as you do today and expect your voice to be heard from on high. Is this the kind of fasting that I want on a day for people to humble themselves? Is it only for bowing one's head like a reed and for lying in sackcloth and ashes? Is that what you call a fast, a day acceptable to the Lord? Is not this the kind of fasting I want? To loose the chains of injustice? To untie the cords of the, of the oppressed? To set the captives free? To break every yoke? Is it not to share your food with the hungry and to provide the poor with shelter? When you see the naked to clothe them, and not to turn away from your own flesh and blood. So fasting was meant to help one grow in charity toward others. Then we have this gospel passage from the Gospel of Matthew, chapter 9, that introduces another purpose for fasting. The disciples of John came to Jesus and asked him, Why do we and the Pharisees fast, but your disciples do not? And Jesus said to them, The attendants of the bridegroom cannot mourn as long as the bridegroom is with them, 
But the days will come when the bridegroom is taken away from them. On that day, they will fast. The reason here that is revealed for fasting is fasting was a way to stay awake spiritually and to keep vigil, to keep alive in one's heart the yearning and expectation for the coming of the Messiah and for one to remember their pilgrim status here below. When Jesus the Messiah comes, his coming fulfills this last reason for fasting. For why would one fast with yearning for the Messiah when the Messiah, the bridegroom, is present? This is why there was a temporary suspension of fasting for the disciples of Jesus. For they lived and walked with Jesus, their long-expected Messiah. Fasting returns into the life of the disciples and into our life because the bridegroom is taken away. He is absent from us in the way that he was present during his earthly time here. For fasting will now be the way to be with Jesus in his suffering and death and to share in it And when Jesus ascends to the Father, it also becomes a way for the Christian community to keep alive in our hearts the yearning and anticipation for the second coming of Christ, his return in glory. Fasting will become more than a liturgical or ascetical law. It will become love a way of loving, a way to keep the desire for Jesus burning in our hearts and to keep that desire alive and strong. Fasting is therefore necessary to help us to keep in us a pilgrim attitude in our daily life, keeping our minds fixed on the things above rather than the things on earth, somewhat somewhat like the wandering nomads in the desert. They never sunk tent pegs very firmly in the ground so they could pull them up quickly and move on to the next pace or the next place. We are pilgrims, and fasting is a way to remind us that we are, and not to put tent pegs firmly in in our lives. So we see in all these reasons that fasting has some kind of connection to God or to our neighbor. When fasting becomes ritualized and a habitual part of life, it sometimes loses this relational dimension and tends in some cases to enclose a person in on themselves, leading to pride, superiority, and self-exaltation. 
This is what we see with the Pharisees. This is why fasting will always need almsgiving in some form as to keep it from becoming self-focused and self-serving. True fasting is meant to whittle us down, to shrink in us those selfish tendencies that make us place too much importance and care upon the comforts and legitimate pleasures of life, which can dull the spirit and diminish our capacity to be generous and thoughtful. Fasting is a way that we make space in our hearts for God and for others. Now, let us look at this from another perspective. In the Gospel of Matthew, in that Sermon on the Mount, when Jesus talks about prayer, fasting, and almsgiving, in all three cases, he emphasizes not doing it in a way to get attention, but rather to do it in secret in order that we may do it only for the Father. And so Jesus clearly shows that one of the primary purposes of prayer, fasting, and almsgiving is in order to take us deeper and deeper with him into the heart of his Father, into the love that he shares with the Father. It's not surprising, therefore, that Jesus gives this sermon on the mountainside. Because in the Bible, in the Gospels, the mountain has a mystical meaning. It is the place of intimacy with God. And by that teaching of the sermon, and by these practices that Jesus encourages, they are to take us up into that intimate life that Jesus shares with his Father. To further understand the place and role, therefore, of penance and fasting in our life, let's look at the bigger picture. First, there are two things about us that we must always keep in mind. As human beings, we are a composite of body and soul. And our humanity, as God created it, having a soul and a body which together bear the likeness and image of God, each in its own way, that this human nature is fundamentally relational. In other words, what I mean by that is we relate to God, we relate to one another, and we relate to ourselves, which includes our bodies. And because of our bodies, we relate with the things of the world. And just as we can see and marvel at the order and the harmony of God in the world around us, so also there is an order to these realms of relationship 
a hierarchy of love that must be respected if we are to live life to the full and to know the happiness and peace that God wishes for us. The fall of the garden, which we call the original sin, helps us to understand and explain why so many people do not find or keep the happiness and peace that God wishes for us, and why all of us experience such a struggle in our own hearts. So, let's go back to the beginning, to the fall in the garden. There's a beautiful author that I read years ago. He has a two-volume set that's called The Three Ages of the Interior Life. A French-Dominican priest, Father Gary Goulagrange. I'd highly recommend it if you're looking for a good read this summer, but it's kind of thick, so it might be the only thing you read this summer. This is how he puts it. It's very beautiful to help us understand the, the struggle that we have in this area and why fasting is important. When God created the first man and woman, he created them in a state of original innocence, grace, and peace. Their peace was the fruit of a perfect triple harmony that existed between God and their soul, between their souls and their bodies, and between their bodies and the external goods of the earth. Father Lagrange continues to express it this way. Adam and Eve were contemplatives who conversed intimately and familiarly with God, continually nourishing their souls with divine things and walking obediently by the light of God's will, through which they viewed themselves and everything else. From this triple harmony of their soul with God, Adam and Eve also experienced a harmony between their soul and body, since their soul was completely obedient and submissive to God, they had perfect control and dominion over their bodies. For just as the soul was made to serve God, so the body was made to serve the soul. And finally, this harmony extended to the relationship between their body and external goods. The earth produced its fruit spontaneously without the necessity of being worked painfully. The animals were docile or at least did no harm to men who had received dominion over them. It was sin, says Father Lagrange, that disturbed this triple harmony by first destroying the highest of the three, the harmony between God and the soul. By revolting against God's will, the soul is now inclined to pride, 
to exalt itself and to serve itself rather than God. The soul ceasing to nourish itself on divine truth now lives instead upon the poor diet of its own narrow, ever-changing ideas and opinions. Instead of being directed by God in the truth that alone leads to life, the soul seeks an independence from God, from the influence of his authority, and tries to guide itself by its own self-made principles and ideas. By refusing to submit to God, the soul now has lost its control over the body and its passions, becoming the slave of the body and its instinctual drives. Losing its mastery over the passions, the soul is now carried away by them as by wild horses which no longer know the bit. Boy, doesn't this ring a lot of bells? It's really beautiful to understand the struggle within us and why. And finally, Father Lagrange explains, the body, instead of making use of exterior goods, now becomes their slave, overtaxing itself at times to obtain an abundance of these exterior goods. It surrounds itself with useless luxury to the detriment of the poor. After accumulating a fortune, many are so wholly absorbed in the care of maintaining and increasing it. Slaves to their businesses, they never find time to pray, to read a page of the gospel, or to feed their souls. They settle down here on earth as if they were going to stay here always with hardly any concern for their own salvation. This is Lagrange, Lagrange's description of the effects of the original sin with the fall. Before the fall, Adam and Eve lived in communion with God, prayer enveloped their whole being and everything they did. They knew nothing but the love between God and between themselves. Being master of their passions and desires of the body, which were completely at the service of the love of God, fasting would not have posed any hardship upon them and for the most part, would have been practically unnecessary. This is where St. Paul comes in, in his own way, to describe this struggle as the struggle between the spirit and the flesh. He says, the spirit of God works against the body, and the tendencies and inclinations of the body often work against the Spirit. And every single one of us knows this and experiences this. The way that St. John describes this interior battle 
is what he calls in his first letter the threefold concupiscence, the pride of life, the lust of the flesh, and the lust of the eyes. Now, while fasting can be part of a remedy for the pride of life and the avarice or the lust of the eyes, fasting is primarily offered as the remedy for the disordered tendencies in us regarding sensible pleasures of the body, or as St. Paul would say, the flesh. The lust of the flesh touches upon our relationship with our own bodies and its sensible appetites and the pleasures that are attached to these appetites. Though God made all those activities by which you and I preserve and take care of our bodies pleasant, even the conjugal union between a husband and wife These pleasures, if not governed by the Spirit, can become the obsession and focus of our lives, enslaving our souls and weakening its greater noble capacities of self-sacrifice and selfless service of others. There's this expression in the scriptures that refers to this weakness when it says, and their God became their belly. The ancient philosophers have described it in this way. It is like the mind descending into the stomach rather than the stomach being elevated and governed by the mind. This reveals that there's an order of wisdom in creation, where that which is lower is meant to be governed and ruled by that which is higher. This disorder, or this disordered leaning within our hearts, not only creates tension and conflict in the soul's relationship with the body, but it also renders our relationships between ourselves and the opposite sex more difficult. Deep in our spirit is written the law that persons are to be loved and things are to be used. But because of sin and this weakness that is left in the soul, we sometimes find ourselves loving things and using persons. When legitimate pleasures that God made good are loved too much, they actually diminish us and lead us to what are called those seven capital sins. Remember memorizing these in the Baltimore Catechism? I'll give you the examples. When food is not loved in the right way, it can become gluttony. When drink becomes excessive, in other words, loved too much, it can become drunkenness. When there 
is an over or disordered love of rest, this can become sloth. When sex is not governed by the higher laws of purity and chastity, it can quickly turn to lust. When our ego is not kept in its rightful place and loved too much and put before God, this becomes arrogance and pride. When our love for material things becomes disordered and these things are loved too much, this leads to covetous, covetousness, jealousy, and envy of others who may have more or better things. So this is why we need fasting. Fasting is the remedy that God offers us and the way that we cooperate with the grace of God in the conversion and healing of these disordered tendencies and their effects. Penance contributes to the healing and reestablishing of the triple harmony that was lost in the garden so that we may live with greater freedom and ease our primary twofold vocation to love God above all things and to love our neighbor as ourselves. This is when we are the most happy, even though sometimes we're not completely convinced of this. When we scratch whatever itches and say yes to every pleasure, the will, which is like a heart muscle, becomes flabby and less capable of making the many sacrifices that true love demands. By penance and fasting, I cooperate with the grace of God and say no to myself. I say no not only to unlawful pleasures, but sometimes even to legitimate pleasures, depriving myself of them in order to increase and protect my freedom with regard to them. For example, many couples at different times of the month will abstain from sexual intimacy. Now, sex is a great good made by God, but sometimes because of the effects of sin, our motives can change and become selfish and impure. Lust can creep in and disfigure the beauty and the goodness of the marital embrace. So the abstinence or fasting from sexual intimacy can be a way to, to safeguard the purity of my motive and intention when spouses come together. Another way to look, uh, okay, uh, before that, the key to penance or fasting is love. You'll notice in all these talks, the only way to see everything is through the lens of love. Otherwise, 
fasting can be seen in a legalistic way as a law of the church just to make my life miserable. And that's the way some people still see it. But penance is putting the love of God back in its proper place in my life as the ultimate love, as the first love. When we do this, something wonderful happens. All other loves become relative to our love for God. And then we enjoy everything else even more and better than before without these other things doing harm to ourselves. Our perfection lies in loving the right thing in the right way, respecting and adhering to the hierarchy among the goods that we love, and not allowing those of lesser value to dethrone those that are of greater value. Due to sin, the desires for lesser goods that are needed for the body can go beyond what prudence dictates and compete for the heart's affections. Fasting and other penances, together with the virtues, keeps the passions and the lower desires within reign so that the spiritual love may blossom and always take precedence. I love the way that Archbishop Fulton Sheen expressed this as a way to look at the gift of what fasting and penance does. The way he put it, it's the way that we crowd out the lesser loves by a greater love. So these lesser loves, if they've taken a, a too great a place in my life, by putting the love of God first, I, in a sense, crowd out these disordered tendencies by the greater love. Areas, areas of servitude, like alcohol consumption, misused sexuality, uncontrolled gambling, use of stimulants, immoderate use of the internet, over-absorption with sports, excessive amounts of TV watching, preoccupation with other forms of entertainment, these can all be put back in their rightful place by the work of fasting and penance, which puts God back in the first place. Another way to look at it through the lens of love, penance, therefore, helps to unleash love, to liberate this great dignity of my capacity to love. Contrary to popular belief, Penance enriches our life. It does not diminish it. The secular world around us would have us abandon this necessary aspect of all true love and have us believe 
that we are more free when we throw off all restraint and moral discipline. But, if that is true, can we say that the alcoholic is free who cannot say no to a drink? Can we say that a man or woman is free who cannot say no to sex? Can I say that I am free if I cannot say no to a baseball or a football game? How free am I? If I can't say no on a given night to surfing the internet, am I free if I can't say no? Penance and fasting is a way of saying no in a way that safeguards or restores the freedom I may have lost so that I can use that freedom to use that capacity to love in a greater, more noble way. Do the things we have and own. Are we master over them or are they master over us? This is the gift of fasting and penance. It's a way to test what truly is in the first and greatest place in my heart and my life. By prayer, I give God my mind and heart. By fasting, I give to God my body and my senses. By almsgiving, I give to God my goods and possessions. And by these three practices, all of us is offered and given to God. These are the three means through which the love of God conquers my whole person, allowing all to be given in love and placed at the service of love. Penance, then, is directed toward the nurturing of all these relationships because it helps to turn our hearts outward, away from ourselves, toward God and toward others. Because sin is always a way of turning inward and becoming enclosed upon myself. Fasting and penance enlarges the heart, broadens and deepens it. And this is what Jesus meant when he said, the way to life is narrow and few there are who find it. But the way to destruction is broad and many are they who follow it. What did he mean there? When I scratch whatever itches, and yield to every desire for pleasure, unrestrained, that's the broad way. And it's easy. I don't have to do anything. I just follow my fallen, disordered, instinctual drives. But what happens when I follow the broad way, my heart becomes narrowed in its capacity to love in the way we were created to love. 
But if through self-denial and fasting, I choose to enter that narrow way of disciplining and denying myself and saying no to things, even though the way starts out narrow, the effect is that it broadens my heart in its capacity to love. It's just the opposite. It flip-flops. Lastly, because sin and temptation continually try to pull us back into our fallen human nature and these tendencies of the flesh, we will need fasting and penance our whole life. Or we could lose the victories that we have made in Christ by our fasting and penance. The way that the fathers of the church expressed it, when it comes to the pleasures of the flesh or the sins of the flesh, they are like sleeping giants. Through the means of grace, through a life of penance and virtue, we can lull them to sleep. But if we become lazy and careless in our spiritual life, They are like sleeping giants that become awake and they can destroy all the progress that we have made in love over many years of following Christ. So this is why we will always need to have some form of fasting, self-denial, and penance in our life. This, by the way, when you look at our attitude in the Catholic Church, toward abstinence on Friday, we have lost this understanding by these all-you-can-eat fish fries. Now, now, hey, I love fish just as much as you or anybody else, but we're losing the purpose of the abstinence on Friday. Is it truly, if abstinence is a way for me to relate to Jesus to remember how he suffered for me and what that suffering accomplished for me. And if it's a way for me to remember that and to share in that suffering of Jesus for me is going to a fish or a shrimp or a crab fry, all you can eat, is is that going to do the trick? Now, if we do that, perhaps we should find another form of self-denial on Fridays that does help me connect to that purpose of abstinence. So it's just, it's just something we need to look at if we are going to embrace the very purpose that God intends for abstinence, fasting, and self-denial. So the motive by which we do it is really important. And of course, We want to be careful of that pharisaicalism. It's not a way to flex my spiritual muscles and to show other people, look how much I can do and boast about our fasting or our works of penance. It's it's to take us deeper in the heart of the Father. Amen. Almsgiving, 
is to help us to have a heart like God, which is a love that takes the form of mercy. Almsgiving is also to foster in us the biblical vision of our relationship to things, to live the spirit of gift. God has given us the greatest alm in giving us his son, Jesus Christ. And in giving us his son, God has given us everything. All is for the kingdom. Nothing belongs to us if we look at our lives in the biblical viewpoint. All is a gift, a gift that is meant to be shared, invested in the poor and in, any, and in each other in order to grow rich in love, which prepares us for the kingdom of heaven. St. Paul expresses this beautifully when he says, none of us lives for himself and no one dies for himself. If we live, we live for the Lord. And when we die, we die as his servants. So whether we live or whether we die, we are the Lord's. Almsgiving helps us to live with open hands and never to close them, to grasp at things and to clutch them to ourselves. All is received anew from God at each moment as a gift and all is ready to be let go of and ready to be given away if God should ask for it and if the poor should need it. It is the most perfect and beautiful freedom that a human being can achieve by the grace of God to come to this attitude of the heart like open hands that receive anew all that is given each day, but never closing the hand, always ready to let it go and to give it away. My home, my furniture, the dishes that I have, these are all for Jesus, so that Jesus has a place to be welcomed, a place to sit, and dishes to serve him. Now, for many, uh, many of us, this applies to our family. When Jesus, in the form of a spouse, or one of our children, or a parent, or a relative, or a neighbor, we use the things of our homes and our houses to serve Jesus in whatever way he comes in our homes. When we look at the life of Christ, we see a very clear pattern. We see in his heart a preferential option for the poor, the needy, and the little. Jesus always closely associated himself and sought them out. With, he associated himself with them and sought them out. And Jesus further teaches that whatever we do toward them, we do it for him.
Almsgiving, therefore, helps us to love what Christ loves, and it is a way to be with Jesus. Who showed this to us better than anyone else than Blessed Mother Teresa? She is one who believed this truth and lived it with every cell of her life. And she has enriched the whole world by the generosity of her life. Fasting and other penances, like I said before, are to bring us into a deeper poverty of spirit that helps us to recognize the face of Christ in the poor. It is to help us to make space for Jesus. When we love what he loves and hate what he hates, our hearts become like his. Jesus loved the poor, the needy, the brokenhearted, the lost. And we, when our hearts become like his, love them too. To be like, to be with them is to be with Jesus. To love them is to love Jesus. When we understand this profound truth and let it change us, we find that people cannot separate us from God, but rather they become another way to be with Jesus. And this is how Blessed Mother Teresa saw it. She would begin the day with her sisters with Mass in order to be with Jesus in the Blessed Sacrament. But then for her, another way to be with Jesus was to go out on the streets and to find him in all the distressing disguises of the poor, the needy, the little, the forgotten, the brokenhearted. She could hear the cry of thirst in the heart of Jesus in all their cries for love. And so to, to help them, to serve them, to love them was just another way to be with Jesus. This is what the gift of faith helps us to see and to see our relational life in a different way. How many priests see their service of their parishioners as doing things for Jesus? How many parents, when they do something for one of their children, see it as doing something for Jesus? Or spouses, when they do something for their spouse, they're doing it for Jesus. How many times do we forget this? If we remembered this and allowed this a deeper place in our hearts, we would treat each other very differently. Very differently. And then there's the question, who enriches whom? Most of us have had the experience when we are with the poor, and we are serving them, we go away richer and we receive more than what we gave to them. I have heard this expressed so many times. 
So here are a few fruits of almsgiving that are sometimes overlooked with regard to the poor, the weak, and the little. Let's start with the question, who are the most important people in our life? If you and I were to make a list, who would we put on that list and in what order? Then, let's say we ask God the same question. Lord, who are the most important people in my life? Who are the people that I need the most? Who are the ones who bless me and help me to be my best self and a true disciple of Jesus Christ? If we ponder this question in the light of what we discover in the Bible, it should not surprise us if we find, as we often do, that God's way of thinking is very different than our own. If we listen to Jesus with open hearts and learn from his actions and example, our list of important people may need some adjustments. And it's not so much that Jesus would ask us to take anyone off our list, but it, it is more likely that there will be people that we need to add to our list. Very important people that we have failed to recognize, and among them will always be the poor, the weak, and the childlike. We need to have the poor around us to remind us that we too are poor and so much poorer than we think we are. Though we may have false senses of security and self-sufficiency with our natural gifts and material blessings around us, our life hangs by a thread. All could be lost in an instant and we, like the poor, depend on God for everything. When we embrace this truth of our total dependency upon God, taking our rightful place before God, we will find, like the poor, the joy and the peace beyond understanding. Many people commented, when they have been to Mexico or Central America, to these places of just total poverty, they notice that many of them are joyful. They're happy, and yet they have less. Something is missing in American culture. We need the poor around us to become fully human in God's likeness. God is love. And it is love that makes us fully human. The poor and needy, whoever they are, call out this love from us so that we can be born again and again by our loving and in loving be our true selves. We also need to have the weak around us to remind us that we too are weak 
and so much weaker than we realize. When a brother or sister goes astray and even falls in a big way and their sin becomes known to us, it is through them that we touch again the truth of our own weakness and realize how much we all depend on the strength and grace of God, on Jesus Christ. I am attracted, am I attracted and drawn to other sinners like Jesus was, with feelings of compassion and mercy? Do I seek their conversion and desire their good and happiness? Do I realize that I am just as weak perhaps even weaker than they are? If I am truly humble, can I have any other thought than purely by the grace of God, there go I. And lastly, how much we need to have children and the little around us to remind us that we too must be childlike if we are to enter the kingdom of God, to be innocent, without guile, open, simple, and trusting. Each of these traits makes us more like Jesus, who was himself the humble little child before his heavenly Father. During his time on earth, Jesus had more in common with children than he did with many of the adults around him. Isn't that interesting? This is why he kept pointing at the children. Jesus had more in common with them than with many of the adults that were following him. And this is why he said, unless you become like children, which is to say, Unless you become like me, childlike, you cannot enter the kingdom of God. These are some of the most important people in our life, for they bless and enrich us far more than we give to them. They help us to keep us in the truth, the humble, liberating truth about ourselves a truth that allows us to receive all the love and grace that we need from God. When we can accept our poverty, our weakness, and our littleness, then we don't need to prove anything, to pretend that we are more than we are, or to try to do anything on our own as if we were sufficient unto ourselves. The poor, the weak, and the childlike show us the path to the kingdom of God, for only to such as these will ever enter into it. In a world constructed on very different standards and criteria, which often have no room for the poor, the weak, and the little, we are faced with a choice. What path, which path are we going to follow? 
Are we going to be disciples of Jesus Christ or disciples of the world? May God give us the grace to be counter-cultural and not to be afraid to be poor, to be weak, and to be little like Christ, and to associate with the poor and the weak and the little like Christ. Then we will be like Jesus and already like those who enjoy the blessedness of the kingdom of God, which only belongs to such as these. Now it's also not necessary for us to have to go to places like India or Mexico or South America to the slums and poor areas in order to give alms. Sometimes in our own country, within our own families, even though it's a different kind of poverty, we can often find the poor right in our midst and many times within our own families. There is a great spiritual poverty in America, a poverty of the lack of love, the lack of identity, the lack of affirmation, the lack of purpose, the lack of many things that the heart so deeply yearns for. That's often the poverty where we hear the cry of Jesus. Will you love me? Will you, will you be with me when I am lonely? Will you listen to me when I'm in pain and when I'm suffering? These are just some of the ways of spiritual poverty around us. Almsgiving is living a generosity of life that is true greatness. Jesus said, if any one of you wishes to be great and the first, you must be willing to become the least and the servant of all. When I agreed to become a priest, it was not in order to become uh, to have a high position or status. When I accepted to become a priest, I accepted to take the lowest place in every parish where I go in order to place all that God has given me at the service of your good and your salvation. And if ever you see me losing that place of service and getting proud and cocky, just poke me and let that wind of pride, you know, just come out of me like a balloon, you know? Service and a life of generosity is the beautiful fruit of almsgiving. Now, lastly, let me just remind us of the many different ways that the church based on the scriptures and tradition, give us for ways that we give alms. There's the, the, the corporal works of mercy and the spiritual works of mercy. What are the seven corporal works of mercy? 
Do you remember these from the Baltimore Catechism? I don't, so I'm going to read them off my sheet. Feeding the hungry, to give drink to the thirsty, to clothe the naked, to harbor the homeless, to visit the sick, to set the captives and prisoners free, and to bury the dead. Those are seven corporal works of mercy, which are different ways of giving alms, of expressing love and being like God. Then, and we often forget these, the spiritual works of mercy. To instruct the ignorant, to counsel the doubtful, to admonish sinners, to bear wrongs patiently. Boy, there's a big one. And that opportunity offers itself almost every day. To bear wrongs patiently. Okay, I just gave that one. To forgive offenses willingly and to pray to comfort the afflicted and to pray for the living and the dead. To forgive offenses willingly. There's another one that happens at least once a week, if not more often. Isn't it beautiful that God is providing so many occasions in our life to live this general, this generous life of almsgiving, of giving love, of turning out toward God and others, and therefore becoming more like God and becoming our true self in God. So, let us pray that whatever fruits and little pearls of of grace that we have received in this uh, three-part series of Lent, that whatever God has planted in our hearts, that it will bear much fruit going forward from here. For that, let us not forget to pray for each other. Amen? So let us close with a prayer. And if um, you'd like to stay after, again, we have some tables of joy for fellowship after the talk. And then I'm going to stay here afterwards for a little while, just in case you might have any questions. Also, this talk will be, like the others, on the website. Let us pray. All glory be to the Father, and to the Son, and to the Holy Spirit, as it was in the beginning, is now, and ever shall be, world without end. Amen. The Lord be with you. May the blessing of Almighty God come down upon you and your families and remain with you always in the name of the Father and the Son and the Holy Spirit. Amen. Let us go forth in joy and in peace. Amen. And enjoy the cookies. Amen. Amen.